Putin continues to drive deeper Western support for Ukraine with his brutality and indiscriminate aggression. Now France, Germany, and the US are sending tanks and Patriot batteries. This could signal a real step up from the supply of defensive weaponry to offensive. Has the West finally realized that to end the war requires a resounding Ukrainian victory on the battlefield? Russia is rumored to be on the cusp of drafting half a million more conscripts, but will Putin break the fragile consensus within Russia with his increasingly desperate and ineffective measures? Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. If you like the topics we cover, then please subscribe to help boost the popularity of our materials in YouTube. Today, I'm speaking to James Bruno. He writes commentary on foreign affairs and national security and is the author of four best-selling books. He's been interviewed on CNN, NPR, Fox News, BBC, Sirius XM Radio, and other media. He is a contributing writer with Washington Monthly and has contributed to Politico magazine, HuffPost, Cypher Brief, The Weekly, and other publications. Mr. Bruno served as a diplomat with the US Department of State for 23 years, and he holds MA degrees from the US Naval War College and Columbia University, with a BA from George Washington University. And I should point out as well that this is James's second uh, chance to be on the podcast, and I'm extremely grateful that he agreed to come back, uh, despite our earlier conversation. Well, it's great to be here, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me back. I'm flattered. Well, I mean, the first conversation was absolutely fascinating, given your uh, given your experience. And what really caught my eye was your recent posts on LinkedIn, uh, because I believe you've been to Georgia uh, and you've been getting a frontline view of how the Russian so-called refugees, I am not sure what word to actually label them, but the Russian sort of uh, draft dodgers uh, are heading to Georgia in their tens of thousands. And you've been sort of observing how that process is going, haven't you? Yes, I uh, went to, to, I traveled to Georgia in November and I wanted to explore uh, the impact of these uh, Russian draft dodgers who are estimated to number approximately 120,000 now in that country out of at least a half a million who have fled Russia. I wanted to uh, dig into how the impact on Georgian society, but also how the Russians themselves are faring. And I found it fascinating. Um, the uh, First of all, uh, I have to say at the outset that the, the Russians are not popular among Georgians. But that goes back historically as well as um, to today. Um, there's a lot of lingering resentment uh, among Georgians, as there are in other ex-Soviet republics, uh, to Russian dominance. But in the case of these, these men, uh, they're overwhelmingly young. They're very educated. Um, and uh, they're just trying to escape from uh, uh, from. Uh, Putin's uh, so-called mobilization. Um, in any case, the uh, they're, they're gen I have to say they're generally despised among Georgians. Um, one, historically, two, uh, because uh, these people, uh, first of all, they're in large numbers in a very small country of under, under 4 million. Uh, so you see them everywhere. 
um, on the streets, uh, in the shops, and so on. Basically, um, um, Georgians complain that they uh, they say these Russians come here and they they act as if they still own us. And so, even though Georgians uh, are now, the, I, I believe Georgian students get uh, have to take two years of mandatory Russian in school, which gives them a basic um, a facility in the language. They hate speaking it. And so whenever the whenever uh, Russians come into a shop and I saw this my, with my own eyes and they'll speak Russian, they won't the, the Georgians complain that they don't make the effort to even learn a few uh, phrases, words of Georgian, which I did, by the way. It's an impossible language, but I made the effort, which went far. Um, in any case, uh, they'll speak Russian and the Georgians love to say, um, I refuse to speak Russian back to them. And one one young lady told me when whenever a Russian addresses me in Russian, I always answer in English in order to mess with their mind. So it's this kind of tension. But I have to say this: I, I look very um, quite. Uh, I delved quite deeply into how these Russians are impacting society, and I have to say they're behaving themselves. Um, they are not. Uh, Georgians told me. Um, that they are not, the Russians are not a, a burden on social welfare as a rule. Um, they tend to bring their work with them. They're very, di they're digital, many of them are digital nomads. So they, uh, who are uh, often have technical uh, vocations. So they are able to carry on their, their, their jobs wherever they are over uh, outside of Russia. Um, and they, they generally are, uh, behave themselves and, um, try and in fact many of them are go out of their way to try to build bridges with Georgians to they're they're, they're fully cognizant of the fact that they are guests in the country so I would say there's there's no serious tensions between the groups but Georgians do worry about the long-term uh impact of having you know over a hundred thousand Russians in their midst could they become a permanent community? Mm. They don't want to become like uh, the Baltic states where they're stuck with a sizable population of, of uh, ethnic Russians who then possibly could be uh, manipulated by Moscow at some point. So they have that in mind as, as well. So it's fascinating. I also traveled to the Russian border uh, in two spots, one south of Setia, and two and further to the east, uh, northeast, right up to the border with, with uh, Russia. And I wanted to go there just to get a flavor of what the situation is uh, in the border regions. In the south of Setia, it's quite tense. Um, I wouldn't say that there's any uh, danger of a flare-up, but nonetheless, the, uh, the Georgians are terribly, Georgian population, is terribly upset over the fact that Russia in, in 2008 invaded and occupied 20% of the country, you know, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and set up these puppet uh, republics. And uh, uh, in, in, in the, the Northeast border area, it was interesting. I visited um, a, a, a huge uh, monument to. Um, Soviet Georgian relations that was put up in the 1980s, back when 
Georgia was still a part of the Soviet Union. And actually, artistically, this monument, which is on a mountain, is, um, is actually in good taste. It's quite artistic and, and informative. But the Georgians hate it. They'd like nothing better than to mow it, to blow it up or bulldoze it over only because of the symbolism. And so it's sort of a, a, like a testament to tyranny that's among the Georgian population. But they don't touch it because they do not want to antagonize the Russians more than they need to. Unlike, in, again, in the Baltic states where they're still blowing up statues of uh, Russian heroes and Soviet heroes. Um, That's accelerated, hasn't it? You know, like in Poland yeah. and the Baltics, they're in, in, really going in, for them. And in the Czech Republic as well. Um, but not in Georgia. They're, they're, they're being careful about that. But in any case, the, the, thing, one th the thing that really struck me and I was very surprised about when I went to those two border areas um, is the amount of trade that's going on. Now, Georgia has not uh, joined in with the sanctions regime of the West. So trade flows freely. In both regions, I saw literally hundreds of tractor trailers, cargo trucks, lined up on the side of the road, often having to wait a week or 10 days to cross into Russia or South Ossetia. And um, because the, the reason for the backup is bureaucratic red tape, uh, basically. But um, I looked at the license plates and the uh, advertising on the side of the trucks and they were uh, a mix of, uh, nationalities ranging from regional and a lot of Armenian. The Armenians are very entrepreneurial in transportation. Uh, a lot of Armenian transport, but Azerbaijan, um, some Iranian, but also I was surprised to see a lot of German trucks. And I wondered what that was all about. Um, so in any case, these trucks were lined up for miles and miles on, the, on these highways waiting to get into Russia. So the indication to me is that trade is going on robustly in that area, um, maybe because in the in the West, in Eastern Europe, and so on, in Scandinavia, the uh, the trade has pretty much come to a halt. So through Finland and through uh, the sort of the NATO borders, obviously that trade has slowed to a trickle, and the air and train freight has all but ceased. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there's stuff through from Kilingarad and, and, and places. But, you know, people I've spoken to who have actually been in Moscow, and one of them includes a, a, a sort of journalist correspondent who was there. He said, superficially, you can't see much impact, at least in the larger, richer centers like Moscow and St. Petersburg. You know, people are going to restaurants. The shops have most of the products that you'd need. It might be swapping out some sort of Western brands with Chinese or wherever. But what you're seeing there suggests that trade is finding a way to circumvent the uh, sanctions. Yeah, and this, this is where we get into a discussion of the sanctions, because, um, you know, my, my premise has always been that sanctions take years to work. I'm afraid Western media tend to look for quick results and things like this. I, when I was in the State Department, 
I worked on Afghanistan for years. That back when the, <clears throat> the country was invaded and occupied by the Soviet Union. <clears throat> and we saw the same kind of thing play out back then, uh, albeit uh, the Soviet Union was not as, did not have as a, a prosperous consumer culture as it does today. <clears throat> In any case, we had sanctions against the Soviet Union back then, but also the combat that was taking place inside Afghanistan was taking a toll. But it took years for that to have an effect on Russian society, Soviet society. And um, in the end, in that war over a decade, the, the Soviet Union lost over 10,000 killed in action, plus probably three times that uh, wounded in action <clears throat> and missing. <clears throat> and it took, it, it was uh, in the final stages of that period that Russians were um, feeling the pain and, and, and registering their pain. And, and I always like to uh, refer to the Committee of uh, Russian, the Committee of Soviet, I'm sorry, the Committee of, of Mothers of Soldiers, which is still strong and going. They're an independent group, mothers of um, men serving in the, actively in this Russian army, um, back then, in the 1980s, they, they took to protesting. And it was one of these embarrassing things, like we, the same, we saw, saw a similar thing in Argentina during the military dictatorship there. When you had mothers uh, meeting in the plazas and protesting, <clears throat> and the regime really not knowing how to deal with them because they did not want to be seen as beating, beating up middle-aged women. Um, <clears throat> in any case, um, it, took, it took years for um, the effects of sanctions and the body count um, to, take an, uh, to have an impact on broadly on Soviet society. And I see the same thing basically playing out today. <clears throat> so that um, in less than a year, the Russians have suffered over 100,000 casualties. Think of it. <laughs> In the Vietnam Ten War, times, yeah. in the Vietnam War, roughly fourteen years, you know, in in the United States, we lost uh, fifth, about fifty two thousand KIA in Vietnam. And believe me, I was around then as a student, a, a child and a student, and I remember the impact that had even on my small community where I where I was raised, and that had a um, catalyzing impact on American society and the anti-war movement. Uh, so we're seeing 100,000 casualties in Russia in this war today. How long can that go on, that kill ratio uh, go on without Russians starting to um, react against it? And then there's another aspect, James, isn't there? Because you know, at the moment, we know that Putin doesn't have any scruples about dealing with uh, with the mothers. Um, we know the FSB is already arresting them and threatening them. So they're kind of nipping that one in the bud. But 
there is a longer term follow up, isn't there? When people come back and they're maimed, they're disabled, they're injured, they have psychological problems, they have no jobs to come back to. And many of them will be actually bringing back with them ordnance, weapons, uh, offensive weapons, or they'll have networks that can actually get hold of those through contacts they made in the army. Um, there was an extraordinary spike in the crime rate uh, post Vietnam. And already, I believe from some of my uh, guests that we're seeing an extraordinary uh, violent crime wave uh, kicking off in Russia already. Well, not only that, but also um, a, a, a wave of uh, drug addiction and alcohol addiction. Um, the, people see this on the streets. I'm, my colleagues who served in Russia, in, in, again, in the old days, uh, remember seeing, uh, recall seeing um, Russian veterans just sort of um, flopping around the streets, drunk or addicted, committing crime and this kind of thing. Um, in any case, it's bound to have an impact broadly. Um, not only that, but then we get into the, um, the question of ethnic minorities in Russia. Uh, there are also parallels with America and Vietnam, I have to say. But so the disproportionate number of uh, fighters in uh, the Russian army in, F, uh, in Ukraine um, come from the Far East, the, the Tuvans, Baryatis, Yakutis, and so on. Um, they seem to be filling the ranks in dispro disproportionate numbers compared with ethnic Slavs, uh, ethnic Russians, essentially. And that, that uh, generates resentments as well. Again, in the United States, we had a disproportionate number of, of African-American and, and other minorities who were uh, fighting in Vietnam, and that had impact on um, our social fabric back home. And so we see that playing out in Russia today where uh, resentment seems to be building up in some of these republics that are bearing uh, an outsized uh, burden of the fighting. So we have to take that into consideration. And this, this leads us very interestingly onto that topic of um, the sort of foreign uh, impact, sort of, um, you, you have the sort of the um, ex-Soviet states, which gained independence uh, in the 90s. Russia has, over the last three decades, tried to reimpose its control numerous times on many of those states, and to an extent that's what's playing out uh, at the moment in Ukraine. As you say, some states like Georgia swing between opposition to Moscow, getting closer to uh, NATO and, and Europe, and then they swing back a little bit. And we're seeing that in Georgia at the moment. I think we'll come on to that in a minute because the Georgian government is a little bit out of whack with its own people in that they are appeasing Moscow at the moment. Um, but there's a big difference, isn't there, between those states that have had a taste of independence or semi-independence and the republics within Russia that have those native populations. Because there's lots of talk about Russia's going to disintegrate and Buratia and all the, they, they're going to become independent countries. But actually, the level of control, the level of brainwashing, the, the lack of uh, a sense of local identity that's been expunged by the Soviet Union, we're looking at a very different kind of equation, aren't we, if you compare Georgia to Buratia? I suppose, but. Um, in my uh, recent trip to Georgia, what I found was that uh, 
Um, they, uh, as with the uh, with other ex-Soviet states, the Baltic states and Eastern Europe and so on, they powerfully identify with the West. They regard themselves as Europeans. They have an application in with the European Union to join, as well as with NATO. And they are the broad population is very fervent about <clears throat> uh, aligning themselves closer with the West and um, building uh, uh, security guarantees vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. So yes, you do see that. But as far as you know, the future of uh, the Russian Federation, I mean, we have to consider this is a, a nation of uh, a nation of nations, if you will. Um, unlike uh, immigrant countries like the United States, Australia, Canada, and so on, uh, they're not an amalgam, a mix of ethnicities all living together and intermarrying. No, they're nations, separate nations that have been uh, cobbled together by force and coercion, usually over the centuries. Um, so you have these the, the strong national um, feelings that, uh, that are uh, growing uh, almost by the day. I think that um, we have to consider um, the uh, the scenarios that might impact this uh, the future of the integrity of the Russian Federation, and I see three scenarios. One is, uh, let's say, the German post-war German scenario, where after the defeat of the Third Reich, the German uh, population went through a period of trauma, shock, and then self-healing. Um, and then obviously clearly built themselves into a modern democratic state. Um, I don't see that happening in Russia necessarily because there's no traditional rule of law and civil society is stunted at best. So they really don't have the foundations to build on that. The second scenario would be North Korea, where um, the, let's say uh, they lose their war against Ukraine that which has always been a westernizing influence historically on Russia. And so Ukraine is completely separated and joined with the West, which leaves the rest of uh, Russia more of, more as an eastern 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 oriented um, nation. And but in any case, in that scenario, if it's a North Korean scenario, what they do is retract, uh, draw back into a cocoon, uh, and engage in uh, an, uh, an autarky and self-sufficiency and belligerence. Uh, and that could go on for decades, even centuries. And the third um, dire um, scenario would be that of Somalia, where the entire fabric of Russian society um, just falls apart in, in the wake of um, the, a defeat in Ukraine and presumably Putin's downfall. And in that kind of scenario, what you would have is a breakup of the country into these various um, national groups and uh, basically uh, areas controlled by criminals and guerrilla gangs uh, in tandem with mafia groups and so on. That is very destabilizing, very worried. I'm not predicting that's going to happen, but we have to look at all possibilities. and. Um, and and that's one of them. And, and given the fact that the Russia is a nuclear power, um, that makes things even more volatile. So 
what's this in, what kind of impact could this have on these nationalities? Well, already we're seeing more agitation among the various uh, regions of Russia for uh, more autonomy, that more uh, reaction, more resentment to the fact, as I said before, that their their men are dying in larger numbers in Ukraine, and um, and in fact, even with the uh, the current uh, structures that uh, Moscow has set up with the, the what they call the near abroad nations, that's falling apart. That's fraying. The CSTO, Collective Security Treaty Organization. I mean, we're seeing fissures between. Moscow and Kazakhstan, Moscow and Kyrgyzstan, Moscow and Armenia, um, uh, to the point where a couple of these states are refusing to, to cooperate uh, further with, with Russia. And then the, the Commonwealth of Independent States, the Eurasian uh, group that they set up, all of these are framed. They, they didn't have much um, to glue them together in the first place. So all of these forces, I think, are in slow play. Where if you watch watch things closely, as you do and I do in, inside Russia, uh, we see a slow motion train wreck in progress, uh, which may also entail centrifugal forces that could cause the Russian Federation to fall apart. So some some scholars call this the Second War of um, of the Succession, the Second War of Succession. Of the USSR. So 1991 was the first one with the breakup of the Soviet Union and, and the independence of, uh, of quite a number of states. And the second one we could be seeing playing out now. And succession, so is, an interesting, yeah. succession is an interesting concept, isn't it? Because essentially the violence we're seeing at the moment, the coercion, I mean, you, you have the underlying sort of imperial motive, absolutely. But the almost, I would say, irrational by our judgment war that Putin's unleashed, that is a direct result of not actually having a mechanism for a peaceful succession of power in the country. You've got, you know, you've got an aging autocrat who to shore up his popularity has engaged in what he thought was going to be a quick and victorious war. And it's directly because there is no mechanism to replace leaders, to bring in fresh blood, to prevent this kind of uh, extreme act happening. Um, I think succession is at the heart of it. Well, I once published an article called How I Miss the Soviet Union. And the, the thrust of that article, and, and I make this argument sometimes, as well as my as other uh, experts in foreign, foreign affairs, um, at least back in the day when, during the days of the Soviet Union, there, there was a structure in place, Politburo, Central Committee, the party, and so on. And they actually had something approximating a succession um, um, procedure. And uh, we saw that in 1964 when Khrushchev was uh, thrown out of power. Um, and, and, and I remember in the State Department and in the intelligence agencies, we, us nerds, if you will, used to parse uh, who was in line of succession, who was ahead, who was behind, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at least we had something to sink our teeth into. We don't today. You're right. You're absolutely correct. Uh, Putin has, has constructed a vertical power uh, system where everything devolves on him. 
and that's very dangerous and it's brittle. That's what it boils down to. So should he pass from the scene tomorrow and for whatever reason, who knows what the succession is? Basically, the, the Russia today is a criminal organization with um, with in alliance with the Soloviki, the Soloviki being the security apparatus, a pretty rotten system. It's like the Gestapo and the mafia being aligned uh, mm. to hold power. And one has to wonder, really, with an educated and more traveled uh, Russian population, um, how long the Russian people want to put up with something like that. I think but, it was one of my guests, I think it might have been Luke Harding, who said, you know, if you want to know what's going to happen in Russia, don't read any books on sort of political economy or philosophy. Read Mario Puzo's The Godfather, because <laughs> that's going to, you know. I think that's right. You know, and then we always go back to Churchill's famous uh, remark about this, about Russia. It's a, a riddle wrapped in a mystery and an enigma, and that hasn't changed at all. And uh, basically, we're dealing with a, a a country not terribly different in many ways than developing countries uh, that have not had the benefit of centuries of of building civil society, institutions, rule of law, and that sort of thing. So it's, but, but un, unlike the Republic of the Congo or someplace like that, we're talking about a place, a country with nuclear missiles and closer to Western security than some of these other countries. So it's something to keep us uh, up at night uh, trying to contemplate uh, the very scenario. I think people forget that Russia, you know, neither went through the Renaissance nor through the Reformation. I mean, it hasn't had a period where power has been challenged by any particular class interest. And you think you see that at the moment, apart from the FSB, which, uh, you know, I, I put this theory to uh, someone who ought to know, Yuri Felshinsky, you know, does the FSB form the only sort of class consciousness in Russia? And he was like... Well, wasn't quite sure about that. Um, but in essence, that's the only group in society that seem to have a common sense of purpose and they control and own the entire show. Well, again, it's a Mario Puzo uh, um, scenario or outlook. Um, I always, I have great respect, respect for the Russian people and for the Russian culture. But I always think back to when I studied their politics um, I, I, I go, I hearken back to uh, uh, General George S. Patton during World War II. He remarked to uh, an, uh, 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 an official from the Roosevelt administration that, uh, that the Russians are uh, recently civilized Mongol bandits. And of course, that's hyperbole and overstatement. But the, what he was saying is that uh, this is a, this is a uh, culture and a society that has not evolved to the level of the rest of Europe. Um, and again, if, if Ukraine is lost, that westernizing influence that Ukraine historically has exercised on Russian society, that will go away. And, and some uh, Russia experts I've read uh, uh, say that, you, you know, we can expect Russia to really be pulled more in the easterly direction, uh, build, uh, sort of relying on the traditions of Tatar and Mongol 
cultures that uh, also influenced Russian society over there. So these are things that um, you know spin in our heads and we have to think about, but it, certainly we cannot predict the future. And it goes against, doesn't it? I mean, if we look at the oligarchs who generally you know, haven't really spoken out, but if we look at their lifestyles, which are very much based on Western opulence, uh, you know, villas in Italy, yachts, etc. They may use this line that they are oriented towards the East, but in their behavior and their lifestyle, um, they very much align with Europe. So it's a difficult circle to square, isn't it? It is, but we cannot overestimate um, uh, the... Um, the impact that oligarchs have on Russian society in a cultural sense, or um, how deeply rooted they are in Russian society. Again, look at look at the United Kingdom, the United States. Um, we uh, of, of of the uh, a creative class, if you will, we university educated uh, people tend to uh, flock together and. We often fall into the trap of a, an echo chamber where we're talking each other, with each other about esoteric things that the rest of the population doesn't get involved with. So in the UK, the outcome is Brexit. And you're, you had great swaths of British society <clears throat> who are not of the, the class that you and I are and saw no benefit of that. And, and populism very much had a Roland, and the same thing in the United States. Um, I keep reminding my wife that I so, you know, here we are, we're talking to each other and to our friends about how crazy things are in Washington and everything, but you cannot lose sight of our neighbors who have a very different outlook. They're working class and, and so on and so forth. The point I'm getting at is the same thing applies to Russia. Vast swaths of society do not have yachts. They do not travel abroad. They and their kids are not highly educated. They actually um, uh, admire Putin for his strongman tactics. You cannot lose sight of, of uh, who in society uh, or what society is made up of uh, in terms of broad populist appeal. And that's an interesting question. I mean, um, it's impossible to have real sociology in a dictatorship. Nonetheless, there are some interesting pieces of research that are coming out. Um, one of those which I'm going to be debating uh, a little bit later uh, with another guest is the survey that has consistently shown since about March, around 34% of the urban Russian population feel culpable <clears throat> for the aggression that's been inflicted on Ukraine. Um, and the sort of corollary of that is that the majority don't. And of course, you know, a great amount of horror has been expressed on social media. I actually thought that 34% is relatively high. It's above the threshold you would require in another country for a revolution of some sort. Um, I don't believe that will happen in Russia because uh, flight over fight uh, seems to be the sort of psychology of those who oppose the regime. Um, but uh, I thought that was still quite fascinating that, uh, you know, some awareness of Russia's actions does seem to be filtering through. But as you say, it, it, it probably there's a big difference between, you know, the urban, and the rural class, 
probably a big difference between you know the university educated and not and demographically again there'll be a big difference between uh those who are you know above 50 and, and below well that's very true and i think we have to keep in mind a couple of things one is that um um uh, you know you first of all there's much more information that flows through russian society than in the pre-digital period. For example, when I, when I worked on Afghanistan with the gov US government, um, there was no internet, there, was no, there were no emails, this kind of thing. One of the key channels for free flow of information is the Telegram uh, social media platform, which is very popular with Russians. And so what I find fascinating is you have these bloggers uh, Russian bloggers who have oh hundreds of thousands of followers on Telegram and who report on the real situation in Ukraine, even though they're pro-Putin, many of them, uh, they feel it's important to expose the weaknesses of the Russian military. Why? Because Russian men are getting slaughtered. And people want to know about this because these are their brothers, fathers, cousins, and so on. And, um, and the other thing is, you know, the Ukrainian intelligence has been belly-hooing uh, information they claim to have that very soon Putin is going to um, uh, start up another mobilization. They, they claim this time of uh, 500,000 men. Now, if that's true, uh, and let me add one more thing. According to the Ukrainians, this will, unlike the previously, this will entail closing the borders so that these young Russian men uh, will not be able to flee the country. What happens when you buy, bottle up that kind of pressure, that kind of pressure, that kind of thing going on with uh, uh, people who don't want to get engaged in this fight? They can't leave now. They would not be able to. So in any case, if that does happen, that's something to watch closely. Because what, you, what Putin would be doing if he closes the border is to be bottling up social pressures, which could then build up. Um, not to mention the fact that they're so incompetent, they, the, the military uh, scholars assert that they would not be able to pull that this kind of mobilization off in any kind of uh, effective way. So we have to keep an eye on that. Um, and so, so it gets back to what we've been discussing throughout this session. And that is the slow buildup of social pressures inside Russia. Um, we saw this with Afghanistan in the 80s. Well, we're, we're seeing it now, but I, we're seeing it on a more intense basis. 100,000 casualties. Sanction, you know, the price of Ural's oil is now down to $40, um, in large part due to the sanctions, the cap, the, the price cap that the West has imposed on Russian um, um, petroleum. And uh, $40 is barely the replacement rate. It's the production rate. Uh, it takes 40 bucks to, to um, pull a barrel of oil out of the ground. Now, what kind, you know, so these, what I'm getting at is these the economic sanction pressures added to the body bags coming back home added to the um, de degradation in, um, in people's daily economic lives, 
over time that that has to build up and even in a in an autocratic state like Russia it's going to have an impact something's got to give it's got to break I'm very confident about that and of course we saw this in the 90s uh that was the period where I was sort of traveling around there and you had I would say similar social conditions in that people would um you know, they'd take time off work, they'd go at the weekends to the dachas so they could grow food. Uh, you, you know, large chunks of the economy moved to subsistence. You even had villages, which I visited, where they'd moved away from money economy. It had moved to a purely barter basis. That was the total collapse uh, of the Russian economy in the 90s. But people might have bemoaned the loss of empire. They might have bemoaned all sorts of things. You know, their youth and their rose-tinted spectacles of the Soviet Union. But there was also a kind of hope that things would get better. And I think that's why you didn't see, you know, large-scale um, social disruption at that point, because no matter how bad it got, you had the traditional sort of, not indifference, but you know what I mean, you had the traditional indolence of the, the Russian population who don't take political action, don't organize, don't self-organize in the way that we see Ukrainians have. But at the same time, there was some kind of hope that things might improve. At this point, they've actually gone through that. Things did improve and those things have been lost. Things that people had have been taken away from them. And that's a sort of similar dynamic you saw in the French Revolution, I think. It's not that people who are, who are utterly bereft uh, and poverty-stricken will suddenly rise up. That doesn't happen. It's where you people have had something and it's been taken away. That's when you get the real sort of anger. So do you think we're getting to that point? I think the center of gravity, to use a military term, in other words, the fulcral point where things will break in, in the power structure in Russia, will center not on the, as you say, the general population, uh, but rather, um, and the again, the security elite and secondarily the oligarchs. Why? Because this again, this is not a democratic society where uh, grassroots um, uh, sentiments make their way to the top to the politicians. No, and the Russians, as you again correctly point out, have uh, centuries-long, millennial-long traditions of being fatalistic to power. So I think it's going to come to the point where the Soloviki, the security elite, will among themselves decide that they've had enough in tandem with the, their oligarch pals. And, and, and these relationships are quasi-criminal. Um, and eventually that's got to play, once Putin, once they smell blood, like sharks in the water, they'll go after Putin. I don't care. People say, well, he's got this Rosgvardia, the National Guard that he built, quarter of a million men. They'll protect him. I mean, how many times have we seen this before? Iran, Nicaragua, Libya, I mean, you name it, on and on. Dictators who built up these, uh, these uh, thug-laden thug uh, apparatuses to protect themselves. If the security elite decide they've had enough, that their core interests are in danger. And in this case, that centers on uh, their, their, their economic financial um, uh, wherewithal, their, their condition. They'll 
all of that apparatus just melts away like butter. And the, the, the dictator finds himself either uh, in jail or uh, worse. And I could see that happening here. Uh, why should mm -hmm. Russia be any different from any other autocratic state where things have gone bad? And so the center of gravity really centers on the Siloviki and then secondarily with the oligarchs. I would uh, say more so in Russia time. because the, the mechanic that drives people's judgment, and we, I, I talked uh, about this with, uh, with my recent speakers, um, you know, whereas in other societies there will be, there'll be different sort of mechanisms in people's brains of how they judge you know, somebody that they've come to contact with for the first time. It could be accent, it could be how they're dressed, it could be you know, education, class. There are many criteria which uh, people will use. I think my analogy was quite simplistic because it upset quite a few people, but there, there are a number of criteria. In Russia, it is, it is fundamentally power. And that equation that people will be going on in their heads is, is this person a threat to me? Does he have more power than me? Is he likely to wield that power? Uh, and, and that, you know, they'll be sensitive to that kind of dynamic. If it's not a powerful person, other things will kick in. Um, and, you know, that is, that exists in everyone's heads. So the moment Putin is weak, it's not that people are gonna stand by him. There'll be a tripping point where everyone will try to align to whoever they sense to be the strong man, the strongest, uh, you know, force in that new emergent society. Uh, probably somebody, uh, you know, who's also nasty and thuggish, but naturally I think people will just have this trigger or this switch that will just flick allegiance extremely quickly. And, and, and that is what I think is going to happen at some point. I think, you know, one little um, surface indicator of this, which is a very mystifying one at this point, but I think it gives us some indication of behind the scenes uh, maneuvering uh, that goes, that's been going on, is this unending, um, unending um, series of murders of of these billionaires i was going to ask that that was that was exactly my next question <laughs> well yeah. great minds think alike you know that um but uh these uh these um these oligarchs who have been getting uh, falling out of windows um dying from a cup of tea um drowning in the pools and so on i i uh I, in fact i remember when i was in berlin a few years ago there was um, the there was a case of a young man who fell out of the window of a window of the Russian embassy, and he was an apparently an, an SVR agent. He was uh, the son of an SVR officer. He fell out of the window out of the damn embassy. Um, how blatant can that be? In any case, that's continued all along. Uh, the most recent case I recall is is. Uh, sausage magnate who uh, billionaire who fell out of the window of his hotel in New Delhi uh, along with several of his associates business associates. what's going on in the surface I haven't I, I think nobody really knows in the West what's going on but I think the sur the surface indicators are that there's some uh, vying of power or suppressing of dissent that's going on that 
uh, where uh, somebody at the top is having these people knocked off or they're knocking each other off. Um, so I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it's something that uh, continues to uh, raise suspicion. Well, I spoke to Edward Lucas about that, who, of course, was one of the first journalists in the world to question whether Putin is someone we should be doing business with. And he thought that, that many of these are almost certainly um, groups vying for ever scarcer resources. But no doubt there will also be a political angle in some of them. We can't really sort of tell at this point which is which. More mysterious, it seems to me, in fact, because yeah, oligarchs dying is is not that mysterious um, in the context of the 90s. And um, I remember walking through a graveyard. This is a bit macabre. I walked through a graveyard in the 90s in St. Petersburg and just the sheer quantity of new graves of people who were under the age of 30. Because normally you walk into a graveyard and everyone's, you know, 70, 80, 90, but there right. are fresh graves everywhere of people in a fairly young demographic. And that was a sign of the mafia turf wars in the 90s that were playing out in St. Petersburg. Um, but more mysterious for me is the amount of fires, maybe not so much in the conscription offices, because there's an obvious connection there uh, between sort of, you know, random uh, political violence, really. But there's been a huge number of fires of shopping centers, warehouses, uh, strategically important military research stations, or even anything associated with the state. And this speaks to me to an extraordinary thing that's really been unknown, perhaps, since the 50s. And that is sort of ground up chaotic terror uh, or, or, or violence, a nihilistic violence by elements of the Russian population. Yeah, and I really have nothing to add to that, uh, other than that I would, I think I would lump that together with the billionaires having, falling out of windows and so on. Um, there's something going on beneath the surface. It's like fishing, for example. I mean, a, a fisherman looks at the surface conditions of the water to try to uh, determine what's, where's the best fishing spot is, for example, or something like that. But uh, so all we can do is read the tea leaves in uh, to mix metaphors and um, guess, because I've yet to see anything or hear anything from any of the true uh, true blue Russia scholars as to what's really going on here. But I think there's got to be some kind of the same dynamic is connecting the two um, oligarchs dying young and, uh, and a lot sometimes with their fa entire families and this kind of uh, terrorism or whatever that's going on inside Russia. Um, one day I hope we'll find out, but right now I don't think anybody. Mm. I mean, Russia it's unique, isn't it? I mean, we haven't seen this in our lifetimes, really. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Also, then it gets back to the political element of if there's enough of this going on, when will people start concluding that Russia or that Putin is losing his grip? That you know, uh, he can't control Ukraine. We're losing um, thousands of our men there. And at the same time, he can't keep order at home. Uh, at some point, you think that uh, that would also have an impact on um, people's attitudes and, and, and their feelings towards him. Well, I've got two questions because I know uh, your time is incredibly precious. There's two more questions I'd like to sort of throw at you. Um, one is you know, 
not so much what's going to happen next in Russia, but who is more likely to take over. And then we'll turn back to Georgia and the destabilizing effect of, of so many Russians and, and how many of them will actually go back. Uh, you know, we, we, we think that a lot of the Ukrainians abroad will go back to help rebuild their country. But then Ukraine has an idea to fall in behind as a, a national identity. Um, but let's tackle that question of Russia first, because you mentioned the military telegram channels. You mentioned uh, many people who would be, I would say, extreme, extreme nationalistic. Um, uh, and it seems that the most active groupings at the moment, whether they're quasi-governmental or, or supportive of the government, or as you say, critical of the government, but for fairly horrific reasons, um, it's unlikely, isn't it, that the liberal opposition are going to take charge? Because what we've got in this mafia state is an extraordinary amount of mafia and the Gestapo, which is the sort of, you know, you've got the SVR, the, the FSB, you've got the Sylvia Key. The liberal opposition, who are extremely Western in their education and outlook, I mean, I don't know what your sense is, but they just don't have the thuggery to take on. No. So let me tell you a little bit about the good guys. I've been in touch with two, um, two expat Russian groupings on this. One is the Congress of People's Deputies. And, um, and the other is the, um, the League of Free Nations, I think they call themselves. They have different approaches to a post-Russia um, uh, reconstructed state. Um, but they tend to be, um, as you alluded to, uh, educated, liberal, liberally oriented, and they're very idealistic. So we're talking about the, the Navalny, Karamurza groups, the, these kinds of people. Again, these are not the um, necessarily, these people don't necessarily capture the souls of Russian rednecks, but they do of the thinking of the creative class. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm watching these, I'm trying to get to know them better. Um, and it's worthwhile for others to reach out to them um, uh, because they may play a role in a post Putin Russia. It's very possible. Uh, that they could constitute the diaspora that are leaders of a, a returning diaspora, these half a million draft dodgers who I think want to go home. They most of them don't want to stay outside of Russia. Um, and they have an outs they could have an outsized impact on the future of Russia because they are the creative thinkers. They are the ones who are leaders. They are the dynamic people in their own uh, their own groups and their own societies. Um, so it's worth worth keeping an eye on these uh, the, the diaspora that, that there there is agitation going on. Uh, they don't have much way of influencing current events, but they they could in a in a in a Somalia situation uh, that I described uh, where Russia breaks up into ethnic nation, nation states and so on. Um, these people could have a very um, outsized voice in how Russia itself progresses. Um, so, um, and uh, regarding Georgia, you had a question on, on Georgia. Yeah, the last question was Georgia and it was about this huge uh, influx of, of people. Many, as you say, are the similar kind of highly educated, uh, sort of more liberal, um, part of the population 
some of them will have access to to you know reasonable amounts of wealth. The question really is you know, how much of a deforming impact are they going to have on Georgian society, but also places like Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, especially if they don't go back. You know, I mean, if Russia descends into some kind of chaotic scenario yeah. or an extreme nationalistic dictatorship, um, it's difficult to see these people actually going back in the near to midterm. Um, Kazakhstan and Georgia both have a, an open door policy for these men, and um, which is great for these these guys who are escaping uh, mobilization but not, not very good for the local population. So for in the case of Kazakhstan, I've read in the press that uh, whereas the Kazakhs are uh, exercising their traditional uh, hospitality, um, they're renowned for that. Uh, nonetheless, tensions are building and um, some resentments uh, are building. And in Georgia, where I was, as I said, I found people were um, among the young, younger set in particular, um, that the Russians are despised. And it's, it's much to do with ethnic and historical dynamics as to uh, other factors. But again, uh, as with the Baltic states who inherited upon their independence, a large uh, Russian minorities uh, uh, who are citizens of those nations, but are not trusted uh, necessarily. Um, in Georgia, they fear the same kind of thing could play out where over the years to come that these people, these Russian uh, exiles do not return and then they exercise a disproportionate impact on, on their country, on the Georgian uh, society, again, which is under 4 million people. So they worry about that. And they, uh, I, I would say if a poll were taken and maybe there has been one, the uh, vast majority of Georgians disagree with their, their government's policy of open door. They want to see the door slam shut. Uh, that's how they feel. So that's something to keep an eye on in these countries. Mm. And a certain degree of appeasement, I would say as well. I mean, one of the issues this week was that uh, Ukraine lent a number of, I think, Patriot batteries to uh, Georgia to help it defend against Russian aggression. And the Georgian government refuses to hand those back um, as a nod to Russia. That was one commentator's interpretation of it. So they're treading quite a fine line, aren't they? Well, they are. I mean, I found that the the, the party in power in, uh, in Tbilisi is the dream, <clears throat> excuse me, the dream party. <clears throat> and they've been walking um, a sort of a tightrope uh, policy-wise vis-a-vis Russia. They don't want to antagonize. Russia, so they <clears throat> go out of their way not to do so, and including with this open trade, uh, they don't engage in sanctions. But again, among the Georgian population as a whole, I mean, I met a lot of people. Uh, the, the, this government is not popular because of that, and I mean, it gets into complexities that we don't want to get into here. But um, you find this disconnect between government policy and the general sentiments of the population mm -hmm. and it centers around Russia and Russians and um, it's something that's going to play have to play out over time we'll, we don't know where it's going
And do people feel any sympathy for uh, Saakashvili, who is uh, yeah, under I just I just had some communication with a think tanker in Tbilisi about uh, um, Mikhail uh, Saakashvili, who was this visionary, um, dynamic leader in the in the took took a office in the early two thousands and really. Um, transform the country in many ways, including democratically. In any case, he, reports are he's on his deathbed. People view him, uh, the, e, the European Union has classified him as a political uh, 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 prisoner. And, um, and there are calls now uh, that uh, from the West, including from the United States, or, uh, to pressure the, uh, the government in uh, Tbilisi to release him, let him live out his last days in peace. We'll see how that goes. He's He, he has a mixed popularity in Georgia. Uh, I didn't find him to be uh, a rallying point by any means, but he was admired uh, to some extent, to a large extent. Well, James, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to hear your view uh, of someone who's been on the ground. Um, and uh, that's something we definitely want to do more of. As I say, last week, I spoke to a correspondent who's been in Moscow. And I think those sort of uh, those sort of firsthand accounts of what's going on, people who've actually been able to speak to people on the ground is incredibly important uh, at a time like this. And I'm hugely appreciative uh, that you've spent so much time uh, sort of sharing your your thoughts with us and your impressions. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm always glad to to return to continue the conversation. Thanks.